Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Raju Narasetti, who is a journalist, storyteller, media business executive, and educator. Raju Narasetti has always had a way with words, and it's no wonder, as a child, if he wasn't rummaging through his parents' 10,000 book library, then he was writing letters to editors of his favorite newspapers. Since then, he's gone on to enjoy a prominent career in journalism, writing for publications including the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. As an immigrant from Hyderabad, India, Raju's path toward becoming one of the world's finest journalists wasn't an easy one. After being accepted to Indiana University, Raju immigrated to the United States with little more than a promise of academic financial aid, some traveler's checks, and a passion for storytelling. Along with the education he learned in the classroom, Raju also learned the lessons that came with his immigration experience. He learned how to distinguish between interactions of genuine curiosity versus those of toxicity, how to react to condescension, stereotyping, and flat-out racism with compassion rather than frustration, and lastly, how to react with an eye toward education rather than confrontation. Today, Raju Narasetti is the global publishing director of McKinsey & Company, a philanthropist, and a chair among the board of trustees of the Wikimedia Foundation, the publisher of Wikipedia. In this age of ambiguous news trustworthiness, Raju is a champion of the truth. He particularly stresses the importance of protecting open content, digital resources like Wikipedia. Not only are these invaluable tools for people who may live in censorship-heavy countries, but they are also one of the last remaining bastions left in the fight to drown out fake news in favor of the truth. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. As always, please share this insightful conversation far and wide. So, without further ado, I bring you Raju Narasetti. Raju Narasetti, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, Raju. You have an incredible amount of experience in the media space as a journalist, a company founder, a professor, and it'll be curious to see how that kind of surfaces throughout this conversation. But I'd like to start by asking you, in your own words, how do you describe who you are? I'm a father who cares a lot about the value of knowledge and information as a way to improve the state of the world from the very privileged position I have of being an American immigrant. Yeah, that's a really great nuanced response. Let's talk about how you got into the space of storytelling and got into media. Could you tell us where you're from, where you were born, and then maybe your first experience as it pertains to understanding language and words and storytelling? I was uh, born in um, a city called Hyderabad in South India. It only has about eight or 10 million people, but doesn't even make the top five cities in India right now. Grew up in a very middle-class family. My father was a journalist. Uh, my mother was an English uh, teacher and grew up in a city with not a lot of wealth, but with a clear understanding from childhood onward that education is a path that can take you anywhere you want it to go. 
And I think that was kind of the beginning of valuing knowledge, the acquisition of knowledge. And because I was terrible at math and science, did an MBA. Um, I was even, in fact, kind of a sales manager for a big dairy products company selling cheese and butter for a while. But really realized that that's not how I want to spend the rest of my life. And when I thought about what is it that I like doing, it struck me that I like really writing and I like, in a way, gathering information. And the earliest I remember doing that was I would send off these letters to the editor to a couple of newspapers in Hyderabad and would get a lot of joy out of seeing them published. So I guess um, that was the first recognition that I'll probably spend the rest of my life with something to do with words. So... How did you then fall in love with the power of story? You know, in the context of American culture, young children are read bedtime stories. So as you think about your upbringing, what was it about your upbringing that made you kind of realize the power of story and realize the power of words? Was it based in the Indian notion of having an oral tradition of storytelling? Was it cultural, religious in nature? So help us understand how it was sort of manifested in your upbringing? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in an unusual family in India in the sense that uh, both my parents were rationalist and atheists. As a result, the conventional early childhood stories that you hear, which were deeply rooted in religion in India, in Hinduism, you know, the Ramayana and Mahabharata, were less important in our lives, uh, my sister and my lives, but we were always surrounded with um, books and with information. My parents used to get like half a dozen newspapers every day. We would wake up less to listening to morning scriptures on radio, but to All India Radio, which was the news broadcast in India at that time. We lived in a house where over time, I think we ended up having 10,000 books uh, in the house. So it was like a big library in itself. And the most favorite game that my sister and I would play would be sitting about 15 or eight or 10 feet away from our bookshelves. And somebody would read out a title and you would time how long somebody else could find the book where it was in our library. So you can imagine like all of these things meant that words mattered and they became, became how you lived your life. That's really interesting. So what I'm hearing you say is that as you went about your life as an adult and did a job where you, after getting your MBA, you weren't satisfied with it, you, in some sense, reconnected with your inner child. You, in some sense, honored that inner child and you reconnected with that person who loved words. Yeah, and journalism in India was and probably still is not considered a particularly valuable profession. Very few people went into it out of choice, at least when I did. So in that sense, I remember writing a postcard to my mom because I was in a different city saying that I'm going to quit my job and go perhaps sign up at a journalism school. And so that's, um, that's, that was unusual back then. This was, I'm talking about uh, 1988, 89. And then how did you formally get into journalism? Was it through coming to the United States and getting your master's in Indiana, of all places. Was that part of your immigrant story to America? Um, I studied journalism uh, in India, and there was a teacher, um, a 
teacher named Thomas Uman, who had lived in the U.S. and worked for the Associated Press and then had gone back to India to start a journalism school. And very early on, he would tell me that I think you should study some more. You should probably go to the U.S. and study some more and practice journalism there. So he inspired me to apply. And um, I applied to a bunch of schools, um, got into a few, could really only afford to go to a school where it was not very expensive and there was a prospect of getting financial aid. So Indiana uh, University in Bloomington, Indiana, offered me admission and the possibility of getting financial aid. I literally had to look up Bloomington in a map to see where it was. And then ended up there August 1989. A couple of large suitcases, I think $2,400 in traveler's checks. I knew maybe a couple of people in the U.S. Uh, My sister had already moved to the U.S. at that time. I was in uh, Maryland. And um, that's how it began. So, Raju, when you first arrived in the United States, how did your preconceived notions of America map to the reality in which you experienced once you arrived? What semblance of culture shock do you experience? And what was surprising about how things didn't map based on your experience? Like, Help us understand what it was like to first arrive here at that time. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of the strengths that young adult immigrants bring, I think, particularly to the U.S. that I'm not sure is often appreciated is we all grow up in different parts of the world spending a lot of time reading and trying to understand America, right? Because you look up to it or you looked up to it. While if you're in the U.S., you don't necessarily need to learn anything about India. So I came intellectually um, quite prepared um, because you spend a lot of time reading and thinking about the U.S. But obviously, it's nothing like actually coming here. Um, My first week in Bloomington, Indiana, I knew something was wrong. I kept saying there's something off and I couldn't put my finger on it. And then uh, five days in, there was a mini traffic kerfuffle, not even a traffic jam. And a couple of the drivers started honking. That's when it struck me. What I was missing and what I was like thinking something is remiss was the absence of noise. Because if you grow up in India, noise is a constant, like people drive honking. Just the sheer noise level was missing. And it really struck me that everything is so quiet. And it was it was amusing when you first when you figured it out. But literally, I went a whole week thinking something is wrong. And so there are things like that or things like your first time you go to uh, a Kroger 24-7 stadium-sized supermarket and you are astonished that there are 15 different kinds of milk or 20 different kinds of bread, right? So there are those kind of things that even if you know about it, to feel it, to have the visceral, tactile sense of it is very different. And then things like, you know, it got pretty cold in Bloomington. And it's a bit of a shock to you uh, how little Americans seem to know about where you came from because your sense of a country is that they must know as much about you as you know about them. And that was a bit shocking, I must say. So that was something else too. Now, Roger, you shared what it was like for you to kind of arrive there in terms of your preconceived notions initially. Help us understand what it was like to engage with 
with people in Indiana at that time, I mean, at the time, the world was a lot smaller, so to speak. It wasn't all interconnected. I mean, the way the media works now, where everybody knows or has access to information from all over the world. But at the time, that wasn't the case. So help us understand how people would engage with you and the things that they would say to kind of reveal what they knew or didn't know about the world in which you were coming from. Again, if you grew up in India and you travel to Iran or Afghanistan or anywhere in that region, there was the influence of Bollywood, right? So they had some lens into India, which was maybe all about singing and dancing, but some lens into contemporary India. I think in the US and Indiana, not that many of the students were from Indiana, but from the Midwest, they had some vague notions of the country. They knew it was a lot of people. They kind of knew it was a different language. Oftentimes they could ask whether it's Hindu that you spoke, not necessarily Hindi. They were shocked that you could speak and write English as well as they could. I've been asked, I mean, I, for a long time, I've been asked if you see elephants on the streets or are there lots of snakes and it must be really, really hot. Uh, and then some vague notion of Gandhi, maybe some notion of the British colonization. But the curious among them would use it as a way to find out more. Um, but often you would begin with like relatively stereotypical kind of views of like what it must be like to um, live in India or, you know, you all pray to cows, you know, that kind of uh, knowledge, but very superficial, I must say, with, uh, with not a lot of exceptions. Yeah, yeah, I can completely empathize. My family had a similar experience arriving to America in a very insular place. It's always interesting how that plays out and how that kind of experience stays with us. But the question really is, is in your mind then, and in, ex in your experience, Raju, how did you notice a change from the moment you arrived in the United States in 1989 to where you sit today? So from when you landed in Indianapolis to where you sit now in Manhattan, how has the world changed? How has it grown smaller through globalization? And then how has that actually manifested in the day-to-day? -day? And then how do you kind of make sense of it? I think the world obviously has shrunk in the, with the access to, especially the coming of the internet, the ability for people to get to see serendipitously or otherwise a lot more about the rest of the world, see it at speed, see it in real time, has definitely changed perceptions, provided people are receptive to that, right? I always remind people who get upset about how little their friend or their colleague or an acquaintance knows about their home country, I remind them that for many of us, we needed to know about the US and UK and a few countries because of the sheer dominance, wealth, or influence of these countries. But if you're in the US, uh, India or Afghanistan or Pakistan was one of you know, 200 countries that they didn't really need to know anything about. I mean, most Americans have not really traveled overseas or many of them don't even have a passport, right? So I think there was a very different equation to why you need to acquire that knowledge. But I took, a, you know, from the very beginning, I took a very long view of this. You will perhaps recognize this, 
there's actually, a, I think there is a Pashtun saying that you might have the clocks, but we have the time. I really embrace that. When I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, visiting a company, I've had a senior executive, I'm coming to interview him for the Wall Street Journal, a senior executive after we meet, tell me, but you speak such good English, right? My response could be, I am from the Wall Street Journal, what the hell did you expect, right? Or I would always use it as an opportunity to kind of think of educating somebody and saying, thank you, but the reason why you do that is because if you grow up in India, you study English as a formal subject and English grammar as a formal subject, perhaps all the way through college, which is way more years than Americans learn English as a subject. And that's because for a couple of hundred years or more, the British ruled India. So I would always use it as a way to perhaps say, if I can put one more interesting factoid in their head, I'm better served rather than reacting in anger or kind of feeling irritated about the fact that here is a Wall Street Journal reporter who has come to interview for the best English language business newspaper in the world, and you're telling him that he speaks good English. So I think it's a function of how you respond as well. Um, but clearly over time, you see less and less of that. Not perhaps because they know more and more about a country like India, but I think there is perhaps a bit more political correctness as well in not saying the things that you were thinking about. Maybe you say less of it now than you said before. But the internet has definitely made a difference in people's understanding about a different culture or a different country. And America's many interesting foreign policy excursions have also brought the world much more, and my part of the world, our part of the world, much more to their living rooms, their television screens, their newspapers. So I think a regional understanding of the Indian subcontinent is way more than if I told somebody I was from maybe Angola, right? They would have had the same things they, are, they had 20, 30 years ago with me. Yeah, I think that approach of shedding light in the darkness is quite literally the best path forward. Instead of being angered, you saw it as an opportunity to instill and transfer uh, knowledge and, and information. So let's talk about where that comes from, where that sense of wanting to engage and teach and inform comes from, and how do you think that has helped you along the way? Yeah, so this combination of not being well off and not being a believer, if you will, meant that I didn't have a lot of fallbacks in my life, right? If you're a deep believer, you have a long, you have a faith and you believe in the existence of a higher power, you can ascribe things that happen to you to fate and to kind of saying you, it's not in your control. Or if you had wealth, then you don't need to worry about things as much as if you did when you don't have it. So for me, it was always about like, I need to do something about my own situation which means then that you can know that you can change circumstances. And so you're then willing to give this idea of a benefit of doubt because then you begin by saying, if I could be here in the US, be talking to a CEO of IBM representing the Wall Street Journal from where I began, then I can also see why that person could also be more informed, get better. And then you draw a distinction, right? You draw a distinction between the person who tells you on Twitter to go back home to the person who's telling you, genuinely asking you a question, not perhaps fully knowing 
why that is. So I think you can you over time you start making that distinction on who you want to engage and how you want to engage. So I think that's uh, that's always been part of my upbringing. Again, this idea that you can become somebody it was my parents fully incorporated that into our DNA or psyche, I suppose. As a result, you tend to look at people as people in a current situation or circumstance or current set of knowledge, and perhaps you can get them to be in a better place. We all don't have to start in the same place to go on the same journey. I think it's important for us to remember that. And that's also something that I've always thought about when I join an organization, and I've joined a few over time, where everybody doesn't have to be on the same page or agree with where you think we should be going because people start at relative levels of understanding the, we all, you know, in many ways, stand where we sit. Uh, we bring a lot of baggage to things. But as long as we all are wanting to go in the right direction, I think that's fine for people to begin at different places in their life. Yeah, I really like that. I think that's quite profound, actually. You deployed a chance versus choice framing of how to engage other people. And so let's talk about how that's kind of worked for you in terms of understanding who you are now, being in America for all these years, almost 30 years now, how is it that you see India as you go back and you understand what that country has gone through? Help us understand what India is like now looking back at it from America. That's changing as well, right? The India I left behind is not the India I revisit on occasion now. I think there was a lot more fatalism um, there was a sense of like, from India, you looked up to the U.S. with envy. And about 10, 12, 15 years ago, when I would go back, it dawned on me that while you still look up to the U.S. for certain things, the envy has been replaced by curiosity. And there's a level of self-confidence in India that they might be doing things differently. They might have certain things we don't have, but we can do it our way. And that that confidence came about in the last 15 or so years in India. And that's a shift in the psyche of the nation. There's no going back once that happens. Sure, there could be frustration. There could be questions about the pace of change. There could be all the questions about corruption and poverty and our politicians doing the right thing. There could be the occasional desire for a lesser democracy so that things could happen quickly. But there is that sense of confidence now that is just irreplaceable. And that's been a big shift. And I think sometimes you could argue that the opposite could be happening in the U.S. sometimes, where there is a diminishing of this confidence, even though the reason why I think so many of us make the U.S. our home and our children's home for future generations is it's, it's perhaps the only country in the world that consciously or unconsciously both destroys and creates all the time. It's constantly kind of creating new industries, new opportunities, new growth. And as a result, I think you always look at it as a place where, whether it's hard work or education or some right breaks, that you can get ahead too. And I think that sense is what separates perhaps the immigrant experience. The um, I always call myself as an American immigrant, right? I've been a citizen for a long time. But that, that immigrant experience, I think, is something to hold on to, not 
based on your language or your country of origin and all of that. I think those are important. But there's something deeper than that, right? This notion of like, you can, with your own abilities, hard work or desire, that you can remake yourself and you can remake the world around you. I think that's what America sometimes forgets when we get into all these debates about immigration in this country, that the success of America is rooted in constant reinvention. And a lot of that has to do with the people too. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to capture the essence of what America has to offer. I mean, there's no coincidence, for example, that the biggest section in a bookstore, when we had bookstores, was the self-help section. This idea of reinventing oneself is all about what are you doing? How are you progressing? What are you aspiring to? How are you reinventing yourself? And this is specific to America. If you go to bookstores across the world, their self-help sections aren't as big as the United States. And that's a representation of who we are and what we believe in and the things that we value. That essence, that notion of reinvention is something that we value and it seeps through all elements and all facets of our culture. Yeah, it's interesting. I have never thought about the self-help section of a bookstore, but now that you bring it up, you're right, right? I mean, there's like rows and rows of uh, books about it. You see this on planes a lot. You see this on trains a lot where all the way from how to get rich quickly to uh, who moved my cheese to a whole bunch of things. People are actually kind of looking for somebody has done something and how can I learn from it and how can I adapt it? And I think that's just uh, amazing to see. Right, right. And that's the beauty of what America has to offer. I mean, for that reason, it's called the land of opportunity. I mean, it's part of the American identity. And so immigrants not only see that, but they self-actualize that. I think more so than any other demographic here in the United States. The United States has this transformative quality that people who come here are deeply appreciative of that belief system here in the United States. Roger, I'd like to pivot here and talk about your work specifically in media. I mean, you've worked for prominent organizations like the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and now you're currently working for McKinsey & Company, which is the most prestigious and largest management consulting firm in the United States. And so what I would like to kind of talk about now is the trajectory of your work as it pertains to holding these positions in these organizations and transforming them to the modern day, transforming them from print to digital and what shape that's kind of taken and how you kind of see yourself in these roles. So when you look back over, in my case, about 30 years in, in the media space, and I've run newsrooms now in three continents, I've created organized media organizations uh, and managed them, it's easy to draw the dots back and make it seem like there was some grand plan that I've achieved, right? Um, so I just want to be upfront about it to say that a lot of this was uh, serendipitous. Out of 30 years in media, some 20-some years was in committing personal acts of journalism, as in writing and um, reporting and editing. And the last decade has been mostly around kind of the business of journalism, if you will, more and more on the business side. And a lot of it wasn't really conscious in the sense of like, 
I've done this and I need to do this next. A lot of it was happenstance, but it was also born out of what was inherently the reason I wanted to be in journalism, which is I am inherently very, very curious about why something is the way it is and can it be done differently. So that's the principle that I've been able to apply and uh, has helped me with some of the kind of transformations or change management that I've ended up having to do or being in situations where I could do them. I think there are two or three principles that have, like, if I look back, that seem to make sense, right? One is this idea that you've got to create meaningful differences and not better sameness. It's very easy to kind of do things better, but they're the same things. It's a lot harder to really create meaningful differences. So that's been a principle that I've said uh, I should apply to in roles and organizations where I've been given the responsibility of dealing with a fast-changing environment. And whether it was creating Mint, um, the business newspaper in India that I created, where the name, the size, the look, and the feel, and what it stands for was 180 degrees the opposite of what the other four business papers were doing in India at that time. Or whether it's kind of saying that if you're at the Washington Post, the print and online offering should not be so separate and distinct, but we could really grow the audience for the Washington Post quality journalism by thinking of this as a more seamless offering. So that's something that I've always kind of thought that we should be doing if I'm responsible for change. The second one is just around this idea that you, um, you can't be solving for today's problems uh, because then tomorrow's problems will come up very quickly upon you. You should be trying to figure out what is around the corner and trying to solve for that. Right? So that's because then you slightly get ahead um, in kind of dealing with some of these issues. And then just finally, personally, I think what's been what's driven me to continuously look for new interesting challenges is this question that I ask myself when an opportunity presents itself, which is, when is the last time I did something for the first time? So it it helps me kind of say, is this something I haven't done before? Which means that in addition to bringing my past lived and work experience to that role, am I also learning something from it, right? Because that's what keeps you kind of, I guess, in a way, mentally young as well. So that's what has led me to many, many years of the Wall Street Journal, uh, then to go off to India to do Mint, come back to the Washington Post, and then come back to News Corp, uh, teach a bit at Columbia, and now at McKinsey, where I oversee all of our global publishing. That's great. And your work also focuses on combating misinformation and fake news. So help us understand what that's all about. The idea of needing to worry about truth and misinformation is relatively new though, right? Because we never really paid a lot of attention to it other than in the fringes of what we were doing. Now it's become a central role of what we do. And it also informs what I do in my personal capacity. I'm on the board of trustees of Wikimedia Foundation, which runs the global Wikipedia, which as you know, is the platform for free, open knowledge and information mostly accurate, doesn't mean there's not some inaccuracies on there as well, and has also driven my own personal interests in kind of using knowledge and information to level the playing field around the world, and then spending a lot of time thinking about 
what is it that we didn't do well that has caused this level of mistrust in media, which has then contributed to the rise of partisan and non-factual media out there. I think our industry, and I have played a role in it, have contributed to it by not being transparent about what we do, not sharing enough about the methods of reporting and editing and publishing, which has caused us to kind of lose some of the trust because there was so much opaqueness in what we did. Um, and I think all of us have contributed. And now it's a bit of an uphill battle when we have elected governments, heads of state in all parts of the world, actively creating this illusion that a lot of mainstream media is non-factual or inaccurate or biased. Now, specifically, let's unpack that. How are your efforts at Wikimedia and Wikipedia and all the subsidiary uh, websites, how are they actively trying to combat fake news and misinformation? And then also, too, what, if any, role do consumers of this information need to do to kind of contribute? Like, What is our responsibility in this whole thing? Yeah, so the model of Wikipedia, first of all, is it is free and it values the privacy of the individual. So the information you are either contributing to as an editor or reading as a reader is first of all free to you and we don't keep track of you, right? This is, people forget how important this is in large parts of the world where regimes or governments are constantly tracking what you're doing and Wikipedia is the opposite of that. It's the opposite of any social media platform where we don't ask you to tell us who you are. You don't, we don't track any cookies. We value your privacy more than anything else. So that's a fundamental building block. The second one is this idea that it is citation-based, right? Meaning that anything that lives in Wikipedia for a long term is based on citations, the accuracy of the citations, and the fact that Anybody can challenge it and can get it changed if there's a better fact that you can associate with that piece of knowledge. I think the model fundamentally is helping misinformation not to live long. Misinformation will be there. Somebody could deliberately create it, but it won't survive for very long because of the model. And the role I think individuals can play is to point out, most people don't know this, but every Wikipedia page has a tab called a talk page. If you find something wrong on a Wikipedia page, instead of lamenting, you could go to the talk page and say, here is why it's wrong and here's a link for the actual information. And depending on the page, if it's a highly trafficked, important page, somebody will get to it almost always within minutes and get it changed if the citation you're providing. So it, it empowers you to not only create factual information by pointing to facts that other people have published, but it empowers you to be able to change it or at least point out errors so somebody can change it. So it's an, it's an ecosystem that helps misinformation not to thrive, which is very different from most social media platforms where somebody has the power to change it and how willing, how quickly they're able to do it often means that misinformation can thrive and spread for a very long time. So it's a fundamental values, fundamental execution, and the fact that it's for profit makes all the difference. 
what's really insightful about what you're sharing with us is that people have the ability to make sure misinformation doesn't live long. It's not that it's going to go away, but it's the fact that people have a sense of agency in order for it to kind of go away sooner rather than later. It won't thrive. I think that's a really insightful point that you just made there with us. There are hundreds of millions of pages on Wikipedia. So in some corners, because anybody can edit anything and contribute anything, something could live for a while because not a lot of people are going to it and not a lot of people are consuming it. But take, for example, the elections. If you're anywhere in the world and if your primary consumption is reading rather than watching TV, I would strongly recommend you to go to Wikipedia's election pages because they will be updated in relatively real time and will be among the most accurate pages in terms of what's happening with the election because there's a lot of energy on it, a lot of volunteer editors. They know it's important. They know this is the moment. So it's a good test of like whether you believe this platform can actually deliver the truth and deliver it in real time. Yeah, I think it's superb that you're doing this. And it's it's wonderful that you're sharing this because I think this is the model that we can essentially implement going forward to make sure that misinformation and fake news doesn't thrive. Raju, as we wrap up here, I'd like to ask you one final question that I ask all of my guests. What's your message for the world? Uh, I go back to Abraham Lincoln and say, whatever you are, be a good one. Ah, short and sweet. Raju, thank you for the work that you do and thank you for being the light in the darkness. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esaud. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation group. In this group, we discuss topics related to the human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support and see you next time.